From 1870 to 1910, America absorbed six million Italian immigrants. Most were ordinary citizens seeking the bright opportunities promised in a new world. What they found were crime-ridden neighborhoods and the shadowy corruption of the old world. Too often, they fell victim to Sicilian-American predators. Terrorized by a secretive clan of evildoers, they were forced to pay exorbitant sums of cash in exchange for their very lives. From Ohio to New York to New Orleans, kidnappings for ransom, dynamite explosions, and murders rot the Italian immigrants, who had little command of the English language and even less trust of local authorities. By 1909, this corrupt organization, led by a devious yet unassuming villain, had woven its tentacles into the very fabric of the Italian-American community, strangling any hope of the freedom and prosperity they had risked everything to achieve. This is the legend of Sam Lima and the Black Hand. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster era stuff. Five dudes of public enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This is what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing. This is my do, 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 do. In a presentation. Okay, I started recording since you guys kind of started the show on your own. <laughs> By continuing to be in a meeting, you are consenting to be recorded. I have to approve to be recorded. Is this yes. like... You have to sign the waiver. Oh, sign God. Waiver. Everything sign you say can will be used against you on the Partners in Crime podcast. So I certainly hope it is, actually. Yeah, it says William Hammy Oldfield. So I assume since the Hammy's in quotes, that that's what you prefer to be called. Yep. Yep. That works. Where does that come from? Hamilton. Hamilton. That was not my guess. I grew up as Hamilton or Hammy uh, and didn't become Bill until accidentally introducing myself as such in about 2002 when I moved here to Annapolis and I can't seem to get rid of it. So most of your friends call you Hammy? <laughs> Everybody. Well, that's wow. weird because you told me to call you <laughs> Mr. Oldfield. I did? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> friends call me Hammy. You, sir, may call me Mr. Oldfield. I called someone, a, a young guy about 30 years old, sir, the other day. He, he had a, a uniform on with lots of applesauce and whatnot on his left breast. So I figured I may as well call him that. He was Navy. He's earned it. Yeah, he, he definitely has. I, I didn't want to mess with him. I, I park cars for the Navy football games, by the way, with a friend of mine who's got a big property next to the stadium. Wow. We, uh, he gets uh, three quarters of the money. I get one quarter of the money because it's his land, obviously. Sure, and sure. So we see a lot of retired admirals and just all kinds of people come in that they, they they reserve online. So wow. if you ever come out here for a game, let me know and you'll reserve a spot, you know. For a guy that knows the ins and outs of the black hand, you're getting a pretty small cut. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm only half Italian. So He's like, Bill, between me and you, I just got this letter. <laughs> really? That's what yeah, I mean. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hey, I remember I told you before, I've gotten a few phone calls and actually did get a note under the uh, windshield wiper, an envelope one time when I was oh. in Washington. Wow. Uh, really? Before the book was even written, <gasps> when I was still doing research and working with the Smithsonian and the National Archives and with the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, when I was doing work with all them, doing all my research back in 2006. And I come outside and I'm at the uh, National Archives, actually. I get back to my parking deck, and there is an envelope with uh, nothing on the outside but a, a note in it. So it came out on a printer or some type, not a typewriter, and it actually asked me to reconsider. It wasn't a thank you note? <laughs> <clears throat> no. That's a little one. scary that they knew where you were. Yeah, and, and I've received numerous calls, emails, and inquiries from family descendants of Black Handers. They're generally very curious and excited, wanting to learn more about their relatives 
and many times have provided fantastic information that furthered my research. But I've never been able to discover who left that letter on my windshield in Washington, D.C. So there are quite a few highly successful descendants from Salvatore Lima and Sebastian Lima and thousands of other families whose beginnings in America may have been a bit questionable. Regardless of their ethnicities of Italian, Irish, Sicilian, Russian, Chinese, Salvadoran, whatever. For example, in our story, Sebastian Lima's descendants have been quite helpful. They are an absolutely amazing family of substantial academic success. And if Sebastian had not had children, we would not have his wonderful great-grandchildren. And this is consistent with so many descendants of former mafiosos, gangsters, or whatever bad dudes in the United States. And Sebastian was the uh, quote-unquote brother of Sam. He was the brother-in-law, but you're right. But a lot of people thought they were brothers. Oh, but they just had the same surname. Yeah, that's not uncommon. First cousins, okay. marrying first cousins was pretty common to keep the money and the control in the families. So that's why you see a lot of those names rotating in circles like that. In uh, Back then, I don't think you see much of that now. God, I hope not. <laughs> well, there'd be a lot of mafiosos walking around with three eyes. And I, you know, I yeah. <laughs> I know with mine and Bill's grandfather, our Italian grandfather, he always would yell at me, do not marry an Italian, thin the bloodline. Oh, that's so funny. Who said don't marry Italian? Grandpa Julian. He always <laughs> I like that, Grandpa to... Julian? Oh, I like that name. Nice. Yeah, it was uh, Giuliano. Right. Vincenzo right. Giuliano was his name. It got changed, obviously. Well, my grandfather's name was Vincenzo as well. Yeah, I like Vincenzo. And he went by Vince. I never called him by that name, I can tell you that. That would have gotten me in a lot of trouble. Well, he went by Jim. Oh, I love it. It's like when we're talking in this story here, you talk about John, a lot of Charlies, whatever, you know, all these guys. Or Sam. Sam. They all, you know, did so much Americanizing of their names. Now they want to force everybody else. I'm not being insulting to people who immigrate, but I, but I, I do see a difference in the uh, wanting to be an American. Yeah, yes. you're right. You know, that right. They, uh, my grandfather and grandmother would say, no, no, English, English, you know, like that. And they, they'd force us to speak English uh, as little kids, they, and they would speak Italian to each other, but then they, we'd try to copy them, and they, they'd say, no. They say, actually, it was so funny, they'd, they'd speak in third person. No, Grandpa. English, English. That was like, Grandpa says, speak English, you know what I mean? He always said his, he says, no, Grandpa, Grandpa, no, do that. And I'm like, what do you mean, Grandpa? I'm not doing it. And he get mad. He goes, no, you know what you know what I mean. Grandpa, I know what you mean. It's so funny how different <laughs> it is now. And that's really not that long ago. No, my mom was first generation within a year after they moved here. So, and my aunt, they brought her over. She was born in Italy. So I'm technically second generation by a, by a hair. How's that? Uh, but she could understand Italian when she was older because we used to go to Italy a lot and the relatives. And she could understand them. And then she would interpret and speak English back to me. You know, but she couldn't speak Italian back to them. Thank goodness they had some younger children in their 20s and whatnot they learn english intentionally in school there it's mandatory so they were able to interpret but i thought it was interesting how she could understand italian without any problem whatsoever and then speak back in english well anyway i've been i've been chatting away here as the story is uh, unfolding but the story hasn't unfolded so yeah well this is uh, all good because we do a lot of pre-stuff and this is the kind of we throw in Oh, you throw this kind of stuff in? That's kind oh, of... Oh, yeah, yeah. We Yeah, the show's like BS for the first 15 minutes. So that was the BS. 
I hope the BS could be better. Well, it's okay, you know. It's good BS. I've got some family stories. I mean, uh, Vince, he was a shoemaker, and he had a, some repair shops and a small factory and whatnot. This is in Boardman, Ohio, uh, near Youngstown. Yeah, that's and, where we're uh, from. Yeah, I was yeah. going to tell you, Ree, uh, we have a lot of yeah. connections with Bill. Yeah. Oh, sure. And he, he used to go to a bar, and I had to ask my Uncle Mario what it's called, but there was this guy there that his name was Dean Martin. He used to come in, oh. and this young guy, and uh, my grandfather used to say, hey, you know, you should try to do something with yourself. You know, so finally one time in the bar, they let Dean uh, do an open mic and uh, the rest is history. Yeah, it is. Wow. <laughs> the Dean Martin. Yeah. What you need to do is get my Uncle Mario on uh, on a Partners in Crime podcast and maybe uh, we, we could work that out where you throw him in for 10 minutes or so. Let him tell one or two stories like that. And uh, he knows all of them. They've all died. He's the only one left from my mother and father's generation. He knows some amazing stories about the goings-on, especially about Youngson and Pittsburgh Mafia. They used to put a little pressure on my grandfather. And uh, and this is the uh, shoemaker? Yeah, uh, my, my grandfather, Vincent. And uh, they used to put pressure on him. It was Sandy and uh, Jody Naples. And they pretty much ran Youngstown at the time. And they used to put pressure on him, of course. And one time, uh, he just didn't put up with it. And uh, it was either Sandy or Jody was trying to muscle in on his business. And uh, he came in, and my uh, grandfather Vince had a shoemaker's knife, like looks like a hook knife, and it's razor sharp. When you hold the shoe, you cut the excess sole all the way around the shoe off with it to trim it off. And he just hooked it right around the carotid artery area of of Sandy's face. Oh, he just hooked it. it right in there, and he just held it there, and he pushed it up nice and tight. A little drop of blood coming out, and he basically said, you know, that no, I'm not going to do what you want. Let's not do what you want. It's not going to happen, you know. But he never had to pay any money to uh, Sandy or Jody Naples after that. And every time he ran into him at a a wedding or at an event in Youngstown, whatever, the Naples used to come over and give him a hug and uh, give him a kiss on each cheek and, you know, pat him on the shoulders or whatnot. You know, great to see you, Vince. You're a friend of mine, that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, well, I know our great-grandfather, he was pushed. He owned a bakery. Uh, Grandpa Terry. Yeah. But what's funny was his wife ran the numbers for the Black Hand. There you go. We're a complex people. We are a complex. There was the good and the bad. She was probably running the numbers while she was wearing out that rosary. She goes, if you lean on my husband a little farther, he's going to crack. And my grandma Valentina, my dad used to think that uh, he wasn't terribly religious, but uh, she had that rosary and he used to consider her a saint. She went to church every day. She died walking to church. Okay. Fitting. Fitting. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) and so when she died, family cut up a rosary in little pieces because everybody wanted a piece of it because he was so holy and he jammed it inside of his wallet and carried it for the rest of his life in his back pocket you know a little piece of ro- I have hers and it's so worn isn't it Zach yeah it's like it's about to fall apart she rubbed that thing some of the beads you know are more flat than round that is amazing oh my gosh sounds just like my grandma Valentina it's like, it's like the steps at the Coliseum they're just <laughs> worn down flat yes I love it though the big huge dips in big the center dips. of the that is so crazy. That's exactly what her rosary was like. Do you remember <laughs> Grandma Terry's room was that strange mausoleum of saints in a bottle, kind of like a ship in the bottle? Oh. It would be a saint. Remember they're about, like, what, 18 inches tall? Yes. Well, that was the infant of Prague. She had the giant infant of Prague, and then she probably had 20 little infant of Prague's. And, but I can remember always going in there and thinking, oh, I have to go to church. I remember thinking, like, nobody does this. 
<laughs> they did though. All I knew is I couldn't get away with anything because I was always being watched. And so there, there was a communications network going on in that house pre-internet i could tell you that it was going on all these statues were in communication with the, like like a wireless system all inter- interconnected ready to get me in, you know whipped on the butt with a wooden spoon bill would know about that wouldn't you <laughs> i bill? sure would i've been uh, <laughs> i've been beaten with everything in the house better get started guys okay all right partners in crime welcome back it's been a while we're glad to be here i'm your host bill crooks just an ordinary guy nothing to worry about sitting to my right I got to say, Zach, you're getting to be one of the best narrators in the business. I've heard a lot of other podcasts. I think I think you're top. Oh, uh, you and, talk too highly. Uh, the incredible thing is you don't seem to try at all. <laughs> that's, that's what's so incredible about you is your complete lack of effort. There we go. Zach the Zip Griffith. Couldn't ask for a better introduction right there. And across from me, my favorite sister, except for Becca, Emery Giuliano. Hey there. Glad to it, be back after all this time. It has been a while. It is good to be back, though. You, Reese, you've been the busy one, right? You're doing your, like, mom thing? Yes. Yeah, with a, like a complete lack of priorities for what's really important? Correct. Well, I think when you sit on the back porch of your life and you look back, you're not going to think about the times you spent with your kids. You're going to think about this and the time not- you spent on the show. I will. Wish I had spent less time on the show. Ah, okay. Hey, we got a special guest. We do, and we're so grateful to have him. Uh, William Hammy Oldfield. He's an author, historian, and speaker. He has his latest book out with Victoria Bruce. It's called Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society. And Inspector Oldfield is actually his great-grandfather. So yeah, Glad okay. to be here. Thanks so much. Hey, guys, yeah. we forgot somebody. We did? Yeah. Oh, the intern. Uh, the unpaid <laughs> intern. The control board. <laughs> intern. Waving his arms frantically like, hello, I'm still here. For now. <laughs> Joshua, the intern. up, guys? <laughs> oh, sorry, Joshua. All right. So Bill is the author of Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society, America's original gangsters and the U.S. postal detective who brought them to justice. A title I feel like could have been a little longer, but whatever. <laughs> You know, when I saw the title, of course, growing up how we grew up, we knew exactly what the black hand was. But when I saw it, I I don't think people who maybe aren't Italian know. It was mentioned in The Godfather, too. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was barely mentioned, though. They just pointed out an old guy in a white long overcoat and a white hat and said he's from the old school. You know, by the way, I'll just tell you, one of our characters in the book is him. Uh, He actually did exist. Now, granted that we haven't finished all the research on this one, but we think it was our guy from Pittsburgh, Orazio Runfola. Ah, nice. Because he was known for the long white overcoat and a white wide brimmed uh, businessman's hat. And so we're thinking, how many other Italian gangsters of that era around the United States dressed like that? Most of them were inconspicuous. They wore like baggy clothes and tried to dress like uh, just hardworking. He was dapper, guys. you know, at cigar rolling factory in Pittsburgh and other things going on. As you know, part of his uh, his partnership with all the other guys we're going to talk about. He was John Gotti when John Gotti uh, was just a. He was dapper. If you see his photograph in the book, of course, we have photographs of almost everybody. You'll see he's a pretty good looking guy. You know, this, of course, they almost all have these huge mustaches. He looks good in the huge mustache. All right. Hey, so we got a huge script. We're going to get through it. Uh, long night ahead. For people who've been waiting a long time, the wait is over. Let's get started. In the late 1870s, a Sicilian immigrant named Giuseppe Esposito comes to the city of New Orleans. 
He is a well-known mafioso and international criminal in his motherland of Sicily. He's notorious for the 1876 kidnapping of John Forrester Rose, an English clergyman who has been traveling through Sicily. Upon his abduction, Esposito instructs his captive to write a message to his brother, explaining his situation and demanding a ransom. Foolishly, Rose's brother appeals to the British Parliament, who files a protest to the Italian government. Apparently unfazed by the authorities in Rome, Giuseppe Esposito severs the ears of the good Mr. Rose and sends them to his soon-to-be wiser brother. That's like when the Getty heir was kidnapped. Didn't they do that? Oh yeah, it was, I don't think they used formaldehyde back in Esposito's time, though. Jeez. The brazen defiance of this demonstration infuriates the British Parliament, who pressures the Italian government to send troops after Esposito, presumably to hold him accountable for this insult. Esposito manages to escape into the mountains, and from the hills of Palermo can build a thriving mafia business. All good things must end, however, and when his organization comes under fire, he inevitably turns himself into local authorities. Kind of. So when we say kind of, it's because the authorities that he turns himself into are actually friendly, so they're in on the joke, so to speak. By the time Palermo courts are ready to move forward with the prosecution, guess what? Esposito has escaped. Oh, that's weird. So weird. <laughs> yeah, this is the most corrupt place you could imagine. Probably still is. They're, they're trying in Sicily now, but it's still just so prevalent. Now on the run, Giuseppe Esposito makes his way through Marseille, France, and eventually across the Atlantic to New York City. By 1877, he finally lands in New Orleans. Giuseppe's reputation precedes him, and in short order, he's leading crime factions with his right-hand man, Giuseppe Provenzano. The Italians of, of all stripes, uh, since Italy really hadn't come together yet in this period of time, uh, truly come together, like under Victor Emmanuel II in eight, around 1890. You had all these different peoples. Uh, they saw themselves as completely different races, in fact, some of them. But they were all flooding in, most of them to the southern harbors. During the pre-Civil War, uh, a lot of them came over. A lot of them were coming into uh, South America as well, and they were getting into the Brazil. And of course, behind them, some of these good guys were a lot of bad guys. And what they did is, uh, initially, during the Civil War, uh, just before this Reconstruction era, the 1877 or 67 era that, that we're talking about Esposito, before that period, they were actually knew the shoals and the ocean so well between South America and the United States and all the throughout the Caribbean because they were importing fruit of all types and bringing it into the docks of New Orleans mm. and of course they all almost all the laborers of course they owned them too and so the Confederacy actually hired them to run the northern blockade of the Gulf of Mexico during the Civil War to run weapons food medicine that sort of thing in for the Confederacy and even some cotton on the way out to be able to sell that around the world so they could help finance their war effort. So this really created a, a number of people like Giuseppe Provenzano and other folks that really started to develop a huge control system, a network that went not just from New Orleans, but to all over, wherever they had to go. They had many networks set up. And after the war, during Reconstruction, there was money coming in from the north, try to rebuild the New Orleans area. And of course, all these Sicilians, for the most part, had control of different markets, from labor markets to foundries, to import-export, that sort of thing, and construction labor, uh, all sorts of other control. So they were taking a lot of the carpet-bagging money, as they called it, the carpet-bagging contracts, and using that money and, of course, spreading it around. 
to not only uh, politicians and law enforcement, but also to actually get a few things done, maybe build a few buildings and then skim the rest of the money off, that sort of thing. So the whole area of New Orleans was just absolutely, completely and utterly flooded with, with Northern money and import-export money and was completely and utterly corrupt. You know, from the lowest level police officer to the mayor, you know, to the governor of Louisiana, it was just a mess. And there was also so many people coming in from all over the world that a lot of disease was coming in. And so there were all kinds of consistent plagues in the poorer sections of town. And, uh, you know, the flooding that comes every other year was causing problems with dysentery, yellow fever. There were all sorts of things that were that were happening during that time. And Giuseppe Provenzano and other Italians and Sicilians really saw opportunity in that situation. So this is like right before jazz too. Just beginning, you're right. Yeah. Just beginning. So 1880s. it's all the filth, crime, and plague you know of New Orleans without the jazz. Without the fun. <laughs> but I'll tell you, there were so many red light districts. It was like every other street was a red light district. There was gambling, there were casinos, and everybody was skimming everybody else. There were different levels of bosses, from you know, from street bosses to neighborhood bosses to other bosses who were vying for you know an entire industry, whatever that might be, throughout town. But the Sicilians were very much in control of the labor throughout the you know New Orleans, and they were in control of the import and export, the docks, the dockyards, and they were also in control of the import of fruit. And of course, citrus fruit was extremely important to help fight disease. And as people were starting to learn that there was something about citrus fruit, so it was extremely expensive and it was highly sought after and they made sure they made a lot of money off of it. Yeah, that's worth mentioning. A banana is like an exotic fruit at this wow. time. Yes, absolutely. Even oranges are. Right. I find it wow. interesting though, because even, you know, we're in Indianapolis, but thinking about who the fruit distributors are here, they're all Italian. Yeah, yeah. I see those trucks all the time. An uh, intern pointed it out to me. There was like a, a super Italian fruit truck going by. He goes, well, oh, that's not correct. <laughs> You're going to laugh. Vic Victoria Bruce or Vicky Bruce, uh, my co-author, her husband's last name is Provenzano. Oh, oh wow. We, got, we all got a big laugh out We're of that. We're all related. <laughs> the alliance of Esposito and Provenzano proves to be a formidable one. They are adept at mafia logistics and quickly take control of the docks, specifically the South American fruit importing businesses. Esposito owns a small fishing trawler and names it Leone, after the infamous Sicilian mafioso Leone Marchesano. Over the next few years, he controls not only the imported fruit industry, but the small army of longshoremen who control the docks. It's reported that his organization is responsible for 89 murders over this period. Effectively, he has created the first mafia in the United States. Under the Esposito regime, New Orleans becomes a popular destination for immigrants fleeing the courts and prisons in Palermo, Sicily. It's not long before the Italian quarter becomes a slum, resembling, if not rivaling, the very worst aspects of their homeland. The area has fast become a dingy, crime-infested haven for miscreants. The streets are filled with screaming and incessant chatter, coinciding the awful stench of filth dumped carelessly into its streets. Even in this squalid environment, however, the American dream proved resilient. Over time, legitimate Italian businessmen began to carve out a piece for themselves. Importers of South American fruit, as well as goods from the homeland, began to set up stores and warehouses. Some even began to enjoy the prosperity of this new land. Naturally, these successes came with a cost. 
Wherever prosperity appeared, the Mafia was not far behind, demanding their share of the proceeds. The, the tried and true method, by the way, the majority of the criminals that came over were either from Sicily, the island of Sicily, or they were from the toe or the, or the heel of the boot. So you had Politanos, people from Naples, you had Sicilians from the island of Sicily, and you also had some of the bad guys from the toe, which, which would be more like Nidrangheta, you've probably heard of them, uh, which currently is the most powerful of all the mafias in Italy and Sicily. It's not the Sicilian guys that are that are the top dogs right now over there. The Nidrangheta is, I think they're just, it's because they're still just as violent as they were a hundred years ago. Right, and if you listen to my uh, radio show, I talk about them frequently. They're, they're tough. That's all I can say is that I'd rather get a black hand letter from Sicilian descent bad guys than uh, Nidrangheta uh, descent bad guys. But but like I said earlier, those different parts of Italy, were they saw themselves actually as almost different races of people not even the same people because it wasn't a nation per se yet. And the same thing happened in New Orleans. They had factions, you know, of, of certain areas. For example, people that were from the Termini, Imerisi area of Palermo stuck together. People from the Calabria area stuck together, you know, that, that type of thing. And they very rarely intertwined. They would create treaties, if you want to call it that, and partnerships, but they actually would extort each other as well this period of time was highly competitive. Everybody was vying for all this money from the North for the reconstruction and all this money from the import and export businesses and this massive growth of population in the port cities of the United States like Baltimore, New York, and of course, New Orleans, which really was the core at the time of the import-export. Because of course, the port only has a short window every year in the summer where in the early fall, we might have you know hurricanes or whatever. So most of the time it is perfect weather. So it's very easy to navigate before everybody had a steamship or anything like that that when you had a lot of sailing boats. A lot of people didn't have the steam paddle wheel boats that had the sails and the steam. Uh, and that that's slowly grew. As that grew, the other ports in the United States became a lot more lucrative because you could go there in bad weather in the wintertime and whatnot. So what the Sicilians did in their, their method to extort all these new Italian legitimate businesses and these Italians that had come over that were doing very well was most of the time they simply came to the door or met them on the street when they were on the way to go uh, shopping, that sort of thing, and with one or two men, sometimes you know, one man behind and two men in front, didn't make any contact with the person physically whatsoever. But as we all know, you know, you, you have two guys stand in front of you and one guy stand behind you on the street. Uh, you, you, you could feel the, the energy. You know exactly what's going to happen if you don't do what you're told. And that, that was a technique that they used. And sometimes they would just fold their arms and, and watch them walk by. And then maybe the second time they'd actually confront them and say, Mr. Iacone or, you know, Mr. whatever, Giancomo, you know, we know that you've done very well with your business. We understand that it's important that you, you know, need to ensure that your business is successful and your family and friends, all your employees are all successful. So, you know, there's all sorts of trouble and danger and murders and all these things happening and businesses being damaged. We could take care of that for you. You know, of course, if you share with us some of your, uh, your proceeds and it started that way. And it was a technique that goes, funny enough, it goes all the way back to before the Roman Empire. And it's used to this day. It's used to this day. And some people would call it extortion. Other people called it, no, it's insurance. It's protection. We're we're helping you out. It's protection. Yeah. Yeah. Gunner did that all the time. Yeah. uh, We we talked about that with Gunner Detroit, uh, that it's still, you know, he was, we even had a nice conversation about that. that, And the technique that he used uh, almost made me laugh because it was identical to what they were doing in 135 BC, you know, on the island of Sicily. So it hasn't changed a bit. Now, the second way they would do it, after one or two of these encounters, you know, the, the next time is the, the verbal conversation, 
the third one may be a charcoal covered hand where then someone could walk up to the door of your business that's usually the back door and they'd press that charcoal colored hand on the back of the door and it would leave a black hand imprint and uh, that would mean they were marked but that could actually be for death and then the third time they'd get another interaction it usually could be a letter and it was would be in italian of course because most of these people had not learned any english whatsoever yet especially in, in, the, in the little italy or the italian quarter of new orleans so the police officers of course you know most of them were uh, funny enough they were of irish descent from the north and it seemed like they uh, they they really took over the the police enforcement uh, business in the united states for about 50 years it seemed like that that was their main vocation and, and and other types of labor but they obviously they knew about them but they didn't they couldn't read the italian and they almost never used any any interpreters you know it really wasn't as that sophisticated yet so the letters would be written usually stuck to the back, the same back door not the front door uh initially uh with a a type of dagger called a dirk uh, D-I-R-K, and it's very, it's like a stiletto, if you want to call it that. Uh, it's not a switchblade or anything, it's actually a, a dagger. And that dagger goes all the way back to Ottoman Empire, and even before that, that became traditional, you know, in uh, in Sicily for them to carry one in their boot. So it's, you could pull it out of your boot and throw it or whatever. The families knew right away exactly what that dirk meant when the letter was held to the door with that dirk. And so at that point, it demanded their insurance money, where to leave it, to a person that they trust, that kind of thing. And, and so, you know, no name would be put on there, and uh, but a location might. And then finally, uh, if they started paying, everything was fine. And uh, generally, it was actually not a lot of money. It was a weekly amount. So that way, it was sort of a sustainable amount of money every week. That's sort of like a salary if you build up all the businesses together. It was a salary for the organization of these, of these guys. Now, at that point, if they didn't do anything, they could either be what they call uh, defaced. They could get uh, someone would walk up to them on the street and use a, a dirk like that and just slice oh! them on the face. And so they'd have a long scar for the rest of their lives, especially to, unfortunately, to the wife or one of the older daughters of uh, one of these business uh-huh. owners. It was, yes, it was terrible. Uh, they, that's what they would do. And that, that was where it called defacing. And uh, usually the payment started immediately after that, obviously. The next step would be a bombing. The use of a bomb, usually uh, gunpowder wrapped in like uh, a ball of twine, where they make their own bomb, you know, in like a ball filled with uh, gunpowder with their own sort of handmade fuse on it with hemp rope and gunpowder mixed in with the hemp. And then th- that would be thrown into their front window, or blow up the front porch of their uh, their business, that sort of thing. The worst of all the worst would, would be killing the, the entire family or just the owner, that kind of thing, and leaving the, the mother and the children uh, destitute. And so that created immense fear. Women did not inherit property at that time in the United States. So what would happen is if the husband is killed, uh, unless there's a brother or somebody to inherit it to continue running the business, the woman doesn't inherit the property. Someone that becomes like a like a guardian, a legal guardian, who's usually would end up being so corrupt that the woman and children would still be destitute. And this corrupt guardian that was appointed by the court would just uh, milk 99% of all the, the money out of the place and not really give any money to the widow and the children. So this really was quite effective back then. They, they learned to use all those emotional components. There were occasional businesses owned by women uh, who would band together. Sometimes the widows 
of some of the murder victims and their kids would band together and start small laundries and seamstress and tailoring shops. So, so let's not pretend that the women were in any way at all helpless when something would happen in the Italian community because traditionally in Italy, everybody worked. The kids work, the parents work, everybody works, right? And so let's not feel completely sorry for the widows if the place gets blown up and he gets killed. She will find a way, I promise you. But she's still not going to inherit property and that didn't happen until, what, around 1915 or 1920, somewhere in the United States. So, you know, right around suffrage, right around that time. I was going to say, hey, man, you give them property, pretty soon they're going to want to vote. Oh, my gosh. You know, I think, actually, I think it happened around the same time that they got, that was part of the suffrage movement, is they wanted to inherit and not have some attorney be appointed by the court and the attorney milks their, their inheritance dry and doles it out to them however he feels like it. Esposito ushers in a reign of extortion, murder, and general terror. Alas, all good things must come to an end, and upon his arrest in 1881, he is deported. As a matter of course, a power vacuum emerges. Vying to fill the vacuum are two separate factions. The Provenzano clan, named for the right-hand man of Esposito, naturally steps up to head one faction. The other is led by the Matranga family. The devious nature of Italian immigrants is not going totally unnoticed, and the Italian government, recently unified in the 1860s, seeks to improve its poor international reputation by publicly denouncing the mafia. Similarly, its consulate in the New Orleans area warned wayward immigrants to keep their distance. Italian priests did their part by condemning the criminals at the pulpit. The mafia proves to be stronger than public displays of bravado, however, and the organization grows larger. They counter the politicians' warnings with those of their own. Join our ranks or be killed. It's a catchy slogan that resonates with newly arrived immigrants, and the Mafia is reputedly responsible for at least 95 murders in 1891. The community wasn't entirely incapable of pushback. In one instance, residents took to lynching 11 Italian suspects who managed to finagle their ways out of a court conviction. They rounded the men up, hung them from trees, and then riddled their bodies with shotgun fire. Well, in 1890, New Orleans had a police chief by the name of Tennessee. And Tennessee, in that period of time, was a suit and tie wearing type of guy, but he carried an outside sidearm. So it was almost like Dodge City, you know, in the Old West and would walk the streets, including through the, the mud street districts and the, and the, uh, the dirty quarters and the squalid quarters. And interestingly enough, he would walk openly without a bodyguard most of the time, even though he was threatened with death constantly. He was openly uh, using the newspapers and openly uh, expressing that he was going to clean up New Orleans. And at the time, uh, he was the youngest police chief ever hired anywhere in the United States. So obviously he had some special qualities about him personally that would make you note know, where they'd want to raise him to that level. In other words, he was pretty darn tough. He was also, you know, a great uh, son. He lived with his mom. So uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, laugh about that. But back then that was considered uh, sort of an honorable thing to do since his father had passed. And he you know, did that. So on and, and one side, he was endeared for being that kind of a guy. And on the other side, the Italians, most of them loved him. But the bad guys in town, from the Provenzano clans and the other clans, and the Matrangas and, and other ones, and the Machecas and other people, they absolutely hated him. 
So unfortunately, because of a lot of his, his crackdowns, after a number of things that happened, uh, extortion, bombings, uh, he actually did fairly well in catching some of these guys and getting them in jail. And so he was getting a lot of attention. So the, the Sicilians, are, you know, uh, gangsters, said, we have to do something about this. So what happened was, is that one night he's walking home and it, we're talking gas lights back then. So it's not really bright like we think the streets are today. And he's walking through the street to his mom's house, his house. A couple of Italians uh, walk up to him and uh, literally uh, just blast away at him and gun him down uh, in front of people. There's other people walking, gun him down in cold blood right in the side of the street. He's laying on his back in the mud on the street and, and people walk up to him, they're running up to him. And they're asking, you know, who, you know, who was it, obviously. His last words, which I'm now famous for saying as well on a, <laughs> a couple of occasions, was, it was the Dagos. It was the Dagos. And he, and he, and he, and he passed away. Of course, that caused the, uh, this huge uproar in the rest of the community. All the other immigrants, from Germans to clean Italians, if you want to call them that, the, the legitimate Italians. And so many other ethnicities had come in you know so new orleans had this big huge mass of people you know of different ethnicities english german mainly european obviously they all kind of banded together even though they normally had their own little factions you know of other ethnicities and banded together so we have to do something about this this was just outlandish so they basically round up anybody who looks italian and they know is not completely legitimate in other words they may you know, be doing a little gambling or whatever, and they just round up all sorts of people. Eventually, they end up with about 11 Italians, put them in, in jail. Of course, they, they never see trial. Now, interestingly enough, all the guns that were used in this massacre uh, were handed out to them. Oh. They did not bring their own weapons. The gun safe or the gun cabinet was opened up, and they were all distributed to them. Uh, so there's a little bit of argument as to exactly who did the distribution of all the rifles and shotguns. But it was obviously to, to make a huge example and, and explain to that community that, you know, you're fellow immigrants with us, but you need to take care of your internal problems and you need to take care of it now. Newspapers around the country celebrated the lynch mob, reporting that the suspects were given their just dues by an enraged mob. Seeking to escape the harsh treatment of Sicilians who were tied to the New Orleans Mafia, many of its ranks fled north to safer havens up in Pittsburgh, Chicago, New York, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, and Cleveland. As the 19th century ended, they fled to cities all over the East and Midwest, seeking Italian communities that boasted prosperity. These events seemed to be striking a blow against the scattering Italian gangs, but in reality, they set the stage for an up-and-coming mob boss named Antonio Lima, and his son, Salvatore. Now, to give people perspective, between 1890 and 1910, we talked earlier about how many people from 1870 to 1910 came to the United States, millions of people. But what really was amazing was that 40% of all the personal wealth of the entire Italian peninsula and Sicily left Italy and came to the United States in 20 years, between 1890 and 1910. So, of course, who's going to follow that? Approximately 200,000 criminals from Sicily and Italy followed that because how can you extort these wealthy families in Italy if they've left and they brought all their wealth to the United States? What began to happen is you had this massive industrial boom in the United States. As we all know, the Industrial Revolution and the Great Lakes is where it was occurring. And the Great Lakes at the time, states were the richest states in the United States. In fact, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, Euclid Avenue was the richest street in the world at this time. Wow. The absolute richest street in the world. 
It was like Billionaire's Row. I mean, Rockefeller was from there. He wasn't from New York. He was from Finley, Ohio. He was up there in Cleveland. So all this money was up there. So all these Italians saw this opportunity in New Orleans at this point, the bad guys and the legitimate businessmen. Let's start going north up the Mississippi and let's go to these rich industrial Great Lakes area. And we're talking millionaires were being created, Italian millionaires, just every day. And they just worked their way up the Mississippi and it started settling, as we all know, in Illinois, Indiana, uh, Michigan, Ohio, especially in Buffalo and, and the Pittsburgh area of Pennsylvania, you know, all that right around that rim of the Great Lakes. And at this point, one of the guys in our story who'd come here initially in 1870 to New Orleans and gone back and then come back again was Antonio Lima. This is the father of some of our bad guys also in the in the story as well, some of our black handers. And he was already well established as a mafioso in Sicily in the Termini Imerisi area of Palermo. That would be the dockyards, the shipyard area, and running the labor rackets, that sort of thing, before he ever came to the United States. Worked his way up the Mississippi, and his son at this point, Salvatore, would come later. So Antonio decides to go up and find his new way, get out of the insanity happening in New Orleans and all the inter-gang wars going on with the Italians. Let's make money a little bit farther north. When there's great opportunities, why compete with Matranga and Provenzano right. and you know the other guys down there? And let's let's just start going north where all the billionaires are. Right. Yeah, it's perfect sense. You had Ford and Firestone and Edison and Bolton and Steinbrenner. I just keep, keep going. All the names that you've heard of, they're all up there. You know, Goodyear, Goodrich, you know, all of them up there. It's now 1906 in Marion, Ohio, an industrial town just 40 miles north of Columbus. Salvatore's Sam Lima has all the appearances of a successful and legitimate entrepreneur. He owns a fruit business that thrives on a wave of an economic boom due mostly to the Marion Steam Company, a manufacturer of construction equipment facilitating much of the region's development. It employs scores of workers, and the population of Marion reportedly grows from 7,500 in 1898 to perhaps twice that by 1908. The expansion and prosperity of the community does not go unnoticed by Sam Lima. With his Italian import connections, he's able to provide the working citizens with fresh fruit all year long. Lima's business is a family endeavor. His wife Mary and his sister Katarina handled many of the business dealings like invoicing and payables. His brother-in-law, Sebastian Lima, who arrived two years prior, assists with the horses and deliveries. He's described as an all-around handyman. The storefront proudly displays hanging bananas and crates full of fresh produce. Not so proudly displayed are the activities in the back room. What Salvatore does is he has communicated through his father, Antonio Lima, with a number of these very successful front businesses through other Sicilian gangsters all throughout the United States. And what's amazing is that he's coordinating all of it as sort of an overseer or as a logistics controller before they had some of the names that we hear in the Sicilian or Italian gangs or mafia today. This was just sort of the beginning, uh, the, the paleo uh, era of the mafia. And in the back of the Salvatore Lima fruit uh, importers and distributors is a logistics operation going on with safes full of cash, guns and knives to be distributed uh, when necessary. Uh, extortion letters being written uh, either in uh, Salvatore's hand or other people assisting in writing those letters to targeted businesses throughout the country. A addresses and ledgers for all the different members throughout the United States that are kept in all the accounting. In fact, to give everyone an idea, Salvatore's nephew is another Antonio. He is in Portland, Portland, Oregon. 
So it shows you the distance of how they're working together while you have other men in Chicago, Buffalo, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Detroit, Pittsburgh, some other in Baltimore, and even some that they're still staying in touch with in New Orleans. So they're utilizing this network that they've created all over the United States. And back then, of course, you had telegraph for coded messages, and you also had the well-known and well-used post office. Post office is pivotal to this. Absolutely. And also, they're not worried at all. They're not compartmentalizing and keeping our nefarious business in one place and our legitimate business in another. They are defiant. They have no fear of law enforcement whatsoever and no respect that they're even smart enough to ever walk in there and discover what they're doing. They have no fear whatsoever because the type of law that they have operated within the Sicilian community, uh, this includes both legitimate businessmen and the mafiosos, or the, uh, there's always an omnio, if you want to call it that, sort of a head boss and in a town in Sicily. And if something happens, if someone robs something from someone else, uh, you go to the omnio, sort of the head guy with the most money, the biggest landowner in the area, person you know, is sort of the judge. Instead of going to the normal law enforcement and going to the the court system or the judicial system, they do it internally. Yeah, and and they do to this day. Well, similar to Sharia law, where you know you have large communities coming from Middle Eastern countries, mainly Middle Eastern. Uh, there's other uh, Islamic countries as well that come to the United States, and they want to create their civil law system. Say in Detroit, they've been pushing for that for quite a long time. They feel comfortable with that. They still don't trust the local Detroit or Chicago or whatever city they've moved to the United States law system. And so this is very similar with any immigrant group that comes to a new country. So it's not just this new influx we've seen of people who are from the Muslim faith and those ethnicities, but it was also with the Italians, the Irish, the Germans, the Chinese that came to the West Coast, the Jamaicans when they came here in the 80s, as well as Russian mafia, a lot of immigrants from Ukraine that came here in the uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And it's the same thing with any ethnicity. Right now, the same thing's happening with MS-13. Uh, the Salvadoran population that's come here is absolutely focusing on that law enforcement inside their own group because they don't trust the people that don't understand their language, their culture, that sort of thing, which would be our highly diverse police forces. But to them, it just doesn't seem diverse enough. They, they still are very insular in their community. And so that's what's going on, you know, with Salvatore and his nephew, Antonio, for example, in Portland, and Sebastian, his brother-in-law, and these other men like uh, Rezo Renfola in Pittsburgh, Pepino Galbo in Meadville, Pennsylvania. There's so many of these men all over the country that are sort of the omnio of that town. The Sicilians didn't have any fear at all of local law enforcement. They called them buzzards, actually, in code when they wrote letters to each other. When they used the term buzzard, they were speaking about law enforcement of any type, whether it was federal or if it was local. And they just continued to operate with the community. And the community had a certain level of fear because the punishments were fair, but a bit more fierce than we see today. It was a little bit of an eye for an eye type of thing. We're not accustomed to that in the United States. Perhaps one of the most important items in the back room is a book that holds the names of the members of the Society of the Banana. Its cardinal members are Salvatore Lima, Sebastian Lima, Antonio Lima, and Giuseppe Agnofo. But there are others, and they will soon be heading to Marion for an important business conference. Sam looks like an ordinary Italian laborer, which I think I talked about a little bit earlier. He's not walking around like a big mafioso. He's not John Gotti. He's walking around. He's got the baggy pants and suspenders. He's a hardworking fruit vendor businessman. In his community, he does not want to be seen as this tough, rich, mafioso type guy. Now, his brother-in-law, by contrast, is said to be intimidating. He's said to have struck fear at anyone that uh, inclines to look him in the eye. He's got more of a swagger and more of a gangster classic type. 
So they're a good one-two punch. They're an interesting combination of guys. And the other thing that's interesting about that is you have Antonio Lima, the dad, yeah, who's getting pretty old, actually. If you, you know, Remember I said he first came to the United States in 1870, then went back, got in trouble, got away, and got back to the United States, to New Orleans. Then he came up to Marion, Ohio as well. He's sort of staying in the background throughout the entire story because he's more senior. Just I think he's, he's more of an advisor because you don't hear him mention that much in their letters and that sort of thing. Although Sam Lima undoubtedly looks forward to plotting sinister crimes with his societal cohorts, he has another pressing matter to attend to. There is a thriving produce, tobacco, and dry goods business in Columbus, namely the I.O. Fazone and Sons Grocery. It is owned by Mrs. Mary Fazone and her husband Ignacio, and it's doing so well, in fact, that Sam and Sebastian Lima figure they are entitled to a piece of it. On a fine Sunday morning, they arrive in Columbus by train and take a streetcar to the Italian village. Aware that Ignacio Fazone is out for the day, the two extortionists meet up with three more of their kind. Colaguero Charlie Vicario, a 29-year-old baby-faced murderer, his 18-year-old brother Antonio Tony Vicario, and a railroad worker with a pension for crime named Salvatore Rizzo. The extortionists proceed to the business-slash-residence of the Fazones. The store is closed on Sundays, but the arrival of the ominous mafiosos is not entirely unexpected. Mary and her husband had received a threatening letter only a few weeks ago, demanding $2,000 or else. The correspondence is postmarked on September 29, 1908, from Dunbar, Pennsylvania. It demands the sum of $2,000 to be delivered near a Pittsburgh bridge. The note is written in flowing cursive and is signed, The Black Hand. Now, everybody's probably shocked at hearing thousands of dollars. This is far from unheard of at that time. Some people could say, you know, add two zeros to that if you want to compare it to today, or possibly even three zeros, you know. So uh, you have to understand these thriving businesses were bringing in lots and lots of money, and they were stashing it. They weren't banking it. They were actually stashing it. So they had this cash hidden in, in the walls or safes, that sort of thing. Salvatore Lima or Sam Lima and his, and his brother-in-law, they knew how much money was was rolling through these places. But at the same time, you had all the labor out there, railroad workers, for example, that sort of thing. They were paying a couple dollars a week to the Black Hand or even a couple dollars a month, which was a large sum for them, but they were paying for that for their lives. And so these successful business people obviously were paying a, a large multiple of that. And the reason that all were paying, no matter what their level of income was, was because they'd all had met or heard or knew of someone who had been beaten had their face slashed, their, their house bombed, or ultimately killed for refusing to pay. You know, that's the thing about the black hand that I think is different than the mom today. The mom today, they're in construction contracts and they kind of elevate the cost, right? Or they're into prostitution or they're into gambling, but there is some service being provided. With the black hand, it was just, you're gonna pay me because if you don't, I'll kill you. And it just makes him more grimy, in my opinion, than, uh, than even the mob is today. And murders, by the way, murders weren't solved, Bill. They just weren't solved back then. I mean, they'd find a guy in the mud behind, you know, the railroad shack, you know, on the, at the yard. And everybody would say, didn't hear a thing. I don't know anything about it. Even if they did know, they didn't say anything. Right. That's the level of fear these people had. I think, honestly, uh, uh, getting back to the MS-13, right now, MS-13 is still a very young, immature gang in the United States. And if you notice, they're brutal. They're hacking high school kids up. There's a definite fear in the Salvadoran community. As the gangs mature for one or two generations, they start sending their kids to college. Things of that sort of start to happen. They start buying into legitimate companies and laundering their money uh, into those legitimate businesses. And a lot of this violence ends. 
this is the like I said the paleo mafia it's the very beginning they're very young they want to stake out their turf they're using a lot of violence and there's a ton of fear out there in the communities begrudgingly the Fazones discuss their options Ignacio is a tough and stubborn man he is loath to forfeit a sum of money that would likely amount to their life savings they elect to ignore the threat but proceed cautiously as they move about from now on Regrettably, they don't perceive alerting law enforcement as a viable option. It is rare that a police officer speaks Italian, and they seem virtually powerless to do anything about crime in the Italian neighborhoods. Ten days later, on October 9th, another note arrives. It reads, You have not done what you were asked, friend. You must pay us 2000 or we will come for you. We will cut your heart out, and you will die like a dog. Mary is terrified. She would readily pay their demands if she could, but 2000 1908 is the equivalent of almost 60000 in today's economy. Moreover, upon paying this substantial sum, they would more than likely be approached again. The Black Hand will deliberately and methodically ruin them. All the Fazones can do is resist the extortion attempt. For her part, Mary can only pray that the Black Hand will not choose to visit when she is alone and unprotected. It's a prayer that will go unanswered. As the four evildoers approach the Fazone's grocery store, they don't waste time with discretion. Finding the door locked, they move around to the back to find easy entrance to the wagon shed and marry Fazone quite alone. They're an intimidating lot, and they coerce their way into the closed business. So they basically put Mary Fazone in an awkward, intimidating position without pulling out any weapons or making it appear that they're going to take her down. They've got her basically surrounded. You know, she's got the door open, but now she really has no way out. And they basically say, well, you know, we know you're closed on Sundays. Uh, we're here to buy some tobacco. There's right. no question as to who they are because everybody else in the community in Columbus knows it's Sunday. Leave the Fessones alone. Wait till Monday to buy whatever you want to buy from their general store. So right away she knows who these guys are. Mary tries to remain calm as they begin to grill her for information about her community. They want her to reveal the names and addresses of the more prosperous Italians in the neighborhood. So this is a really awkward spot for her because she loves her neighbors. She doesn't want to sell them out, but she's cornered. She doesn't want a rat, but she knows if she doesn't give them something, they're going to kill her. And they're saying, like, who makes a lot of money? Basically, who can we shake down? Who can we do to them what we're doing to you? And uh, she starts giving them their stuff. And Sam Lima goes to close the gate behind him. And this fraud is tough. She's like, it's now or never. And without probably even thinking, her fight or flight response kicks in. She's not going to fight. She hauls ass and bolts past Sebastian, busts out of the gate and just starts screaming. These guys, they figure enough is enough. They just scatter in different directions casually and uh, that's the end of that interlude. The Lima crew is not the least bit rattled by Mary's escape. This isn't their first rodeo by a long shot and they quite enjoy a good game of cat and mouse. The next move is to feel out the neighborhood. They spread out and loiter about town as conspicuously as possible, all the while gauging the reaction of the locals. News of the Vazone incident has spread quickly among Italian locals, yet no one confronted the ominous strangers or sought aid from law enforcement. People were frightened, just as the Lima gang assumed they would be. If the Vazone still harbor any hope of their situation brightening, it evaporates when another letter from Pittsburgh is received on November 2nd, 1908. The basic sentiment is, pay or die. Suffering over four months of terror and torment, the once stubbornly defiant couple finally concedes and begins to pay. 
The horror of the Fazones is not a solitary affliction. All across the New World, Italian immigrants are preyed upon by the criminal sons of Sicily. And what's happened to the Fasones is something thousands, if not millions, of Italians fled their home country to get away from. And it stuns them that these 200,000 criminals I've spoken of have followed them in all their wealth, coming here with nothing, most of them. Some of them brought their money, but other people had nothing. They're smart and entrepreneurial people. They've focused, they've developed these great businesses and these great new homes, and they're starting to do well and to be able to send their children to school, that sort of thing. And they cannot believe that a over 2,000-year-old business model has followed them. This model that was used by Sam Lima goes back to almost to 400 BC. And it's really amazing how long that that's been going on, regardless in Sicily of how many different countries or, or empires have conquered them from the Greeks to the Romans to the Macedonians and, and continue the Ottomans and whatever. That the same model was going on underneath all those regimes inside the Sicilian community. And no matter who was boss over them, they still had this internal mafia type of behavior and the same protection racket and this uh, black hand concept. They thought that, that after it Italy had come together under Victor Emmanuel II, that this would finally go away and law enforcement would finally control this. And so it didn't happen. And now it comes to the United States and we have a very, very innocent law enforcement structure that absolutely is really ignoring the Italian community. They're just seeing them as immigrants, their labor. So they really have no help. All they have is themselves. So funny enough, they come into a country, they have a large Italian community in, in almost every industrial city in the Great Lakes and in other parts of the United States, but each family feels alone. While Sam Lima is possibly the most motivated mafioso in the Black Hand, he's not the clan's official leader. That honor is bestowed upon Salvatore Arrigo, a 67-year-old ex-convict now living in Cincinnati. Arrigo has earned his criminal pedigree in the hills of Palermo, but moved his trade to America. Unsurprisingly, he makes his start in an Ohio fruit stand business around 1867, and by 1881, he has made the natural progression from apples and bananas in Cleveland to counterfeiting in Washington, D.C. This little business expansion lands him two years in the Auburn Maximum Security Prison in upstate New York. Hate to see it. <laughs> it's just kind of wild. We're talking about the 1860s, like Civil War just ended. And they didn't get drafted. So there were yeah. plenty of them here. Remember I told you they were running the guns in the, uh, the Union blockade in, uh, for the Confederacy because they knew where, where all the shoals were in the Caribbean. Upon his release, Arrigo is leery of the risky bogus currency racket and decides to move into the protection business. The business model is simple. Take money from Italian businessmen in exchange for not breaking their legs, scarring their faces, or worse. It isn't long before he's joining forces with other organizations that provide similar services. These collaborations eventually lead him to acquire the talents of Antonio Lima. Antonio is a former customs agent from Sicily who manages to escape a prison sentence and seeks a new life of crime in the U.S. and Canada. Arrigo also combines forces with the baby-faced Vicario brothers of Bellefontaine, Papino Galbo of Pennsylvania, and Orazio Runfola of Pittsburgh. He likewise recruits Severio Ventola, an ex-counterfeiter from Cincinnati, and a handful of other miscreants from Buffalo, Cleveland, Toledo, Denison, and Columbus. Together, these men orchestrate a reign of terror. Their diverse locations allow them to create a complex and convoluted trail that assures their anonymity. Together, they research the best possible victims and the best plans of attack. They recruit young Sicilian men from Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Maryland. The men are recruited as soldiers and hitmen. If the young men are unwilling to join the ranks of the Black Hand, they're killed. 
In the back room of Marcino's saloon in Columbus, the targets that refuse the extortion demands are having their faces carved to serve as warnings to the Italian community. They are walking testimonials of the Black Hand's commitment to their mission. But no one ever called it the Black Hand. Uh, that was never brought up. Uh, you know, the organizations never really had a name. Their names were always internal. Obviously, the Society of the Banana was an internal name used by all these different mafiosos amongst themselves, not in the public. So was the Black Hand like a media concoction? That is the only thing we've been able to do from our research. I mean, from 14 years of research of this early era of the mafia in the United States from about 1840, you know, all the way through till this period of around 1910. The only thing I could find, and, I, and Vicky and I have been able to ever find, was a Herald Tribune writer took the black hand symbol that was drawn onto letters, left on people's doors, and decided to coin the term. What happened after that is many of the mafia organizations, a lot of them were local at the time, the ones that were not part of the international or the national franchise that had been created by Antonio and Salvatore Lima and the other men, they started using it too as a copycat. So all of a sudden you started seeing black hand popping up all over the country on the extortion letters. The term blackmail that we use today came from this ah, this term. The term now was sensationalized. It's uh, any Italian criminal in every newspaper in the country now after this Herald Tribune writer used it. It just goes like wildfire. It goes viral as they call it today. And all of a sudden any Italian crime, the headline in the newspaper say local black handers do this or do that. And they even started using it for non-Italian gangs to sell newspapers and what happened was other gangs no matter what their ethnicity was or their background they started using the black hand technique to do the same thing to their victims so it really caused a lot of confusion it was actually good for these guys in the society of banana with their nationally franchised organization it just helped them to inflict so much more fear in their victims because it was now everywhere so the newspapers actually helped create the problem by the way there was an assistant attorney general for the post office because the post office was a cabinet level department of the U.S. government at the time. Postmasters sat on the, basically the cabinet with the president because it was the main form of communication. The whole country was extremely important for commerce. Even he, the assistant U.S. attorney general for the post office, even said, no, no, no. These are just little local Italian community anarchists. He didn't call them gangs. There's, there's no organization amongst any of them. They don't talk to each other. There's nothing like that at all. And that really sets the precedent in this story about how important this case was in U.S. history. Obviously, these guys were organized, and they were franchised, and they were sharing money, and they were in communication back to Sicily. This was an interstate and international organization, and law enforcement was completely left sitting on their duffs because they had no idea what they were dealing with. At the time this was happening, this was the explosion of our population and the expansion of the country. They were completely overwhelmed, Re completely yeah, overwhelmed they would have to in fact this this may have been almost a rationalization that they may actually have said some concept because don't forget these gangs or these organizations already were in control of both the republican and democrat parties locally they were giving lots of money to politicians they were giving lots of money to the churches every baseball team in town every kid's baseball team was being covered the money was flowing everywhere so a lot of people outside the italian community were saying well these are just great upstanding well-to-do business people leave them alone so even if something did come up that sounded corrupt or that they broke the law or whatever the chiefs of police were getting paid their kids school was being paid for all sorts of things were happening there was so much money flying around the united states was exploding 
the richest nation in the world, and everybody was sharing in the wealth. So these guys, just leave them alone. They're just local bands of anarchists. It's no big deal. They only pray on their own small local community. It's not a big deal. You know, sometimes how they say in a basketball game, the referee just kind of lets the team play, the two teams play, and he's (laughs) back. Let Let the boys play. play. Yeah, let them play because everybody's getting mad in this because they're calling a penalty every two seconds. I think that's also something that was going on as well. I think there was some conscious effort here. It wasn't just being overwhelmed. Well, and it's interesting, too, how little they thought of them that ah, they're just killing their own. Yeah, we were definitely a minority back then. You know, we were not regarded as the top citizens in the country. Just just a mustache, Pete. They had uh, a lot of derogatory. The the Dago term, you know, was really used a lot. Just a bunch of local Dagos. They're no big deal. Uh, they're, They're harmless. You know, there's so much other things, you know, bigger things that we have to concern ourselves with. Italians are only white when it's inconvenient. Right. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, don't forget, let's just jump forward to World War II. The Japanese weren't the only ones that were being interred in the United States. Yeah, we were being interred. There were plenty of Italians being interred across the United States. That's a dirty little secret that you haven't heard an apology come from the White House yet. You know, no. It's no. not so, coming. No, it's not coming. Yeah, no, exactly. So. To men like Salvatore Arrigo, law enforcement offered little to fear. From the local police to the Secret Service to the U.S. Marshals, none had any real working knowledge of the practices of the Black Hand. They were essentially free to terrorize the Italian community as they saw fit. Nevertheless, they remained cautious and pragmatic, always communicating in code to cover their tracks. Arrigo, inspired by his legitimate fruit shop, baptizes his corrupt organization, the Society of the Banana. Harmless as the name sounds, he elects to keep it an internal reference. He has no desire for publicity. Keeping with the fruit-filled theme, they develop a code that sounds to the ignorant ear as normal business. A carload of lemons is a large sum of money. A box of lemons is a smaller amount. If a mark was targeted for extortion, they might send a message reading, his consultant physician has suggested he eat more bananas. That way he gets his potassium rather than lead, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Around 1908, Arrigo is starting to relax and enjoy the fruits of his illegal labors. He's an older man of 68 years and perhaps getting a bit long in the tooth. He's walking with a hunched posture and a cane. His appearance is becoming gray and shaggy. His cohorts are noticing that he's lost his zeal for the organization's endeavors. He's forgoing the hard work of crime for the pleasurable pursuits of wine, women, and pasta. The senior members of the Society of the Banana, fearing the loss of the stranglehold they've worked so hard to achieve, agree that it's time for Sam Lima to take the leadership role. This couldn't be more welcome to Lima, who's long tired of the tiny rackets continually proposed by Arrigo. He's no longer content to shake down rail workers and longshoremen for peanuts. He has eyes on much larger scores. He's not one to shy away from terror and violence to achieve his goals. He's the quintessential gangster a generation before the likes of Luciano and Capone will hit the newspaper headlines. Sam Lima gets right to business. He doesn't bother with compartmentalizing his legitimate and illegitimate businesses. He operates both from the same desk. He's not as educated as some of his contemporaries, and his writing is crude and blockish, lacking the eloquence and flow of some of the more refined extortion authors. Even his drawings are described as cartoonish, almost comical, albeit depicting skulls and daggers piercing bloody hearts. What he lacked in presentation, however, he often compensated in content. His eloquent prose must have given him some level of pride and satisfaction. 
One of the most famous letters that we have in the collection, uh, we identified some prose that Sam Lima had written. This went obviously to a targeted victim. And this shows that he actually was, you know, was quite creative. And it goes like this. We have silently removed emperors, kings, and princes, and have been as fearless of apprehension as we were the wind sighing in the trees at night. We revel in bloodshed. We smile at tears and pleadings, and our field of operation is bounded only by the universe. We scoff at the police. We push them aside as we would a child. That's impressive. If I receive that, it's say, these guys are serious. It's sickly poetic. Oh, yes, it is. It's almost uh, like an Edgar Allan Poe or an Alfred Hitchcock movie. It's, it's really scary. Is this type? This is handwritten in Italian in a Sicilian dialect. And then, of course, I have the translation, 100-year-old onion skin paper attached to it. If I didn't have the translation, it, I may have walked right by because I, when I read the Italian in the letters, it's not only script in their handwriting, it's, that's already difficult enough, but it's also in code and it's in the Sicilian dialect of Italian. So thank goodness that uh, translators uh, back then were hired and I have some of these actually translated into English and they're just, some of them are amazing. Other people would write some of the letters for him because his handwriting was so bad, but he definitely had some creative juices flowing there. He, he obviously was serious about what he was doing. He wanted to make that money. He wanted to scare the you-know-what out of these people. These are some of the things you have pictures of in your book, right? Yes, we're lucky that Simon & Schuster was very, very nice to us, that they let me give context to the story with Vicky where we were allowed to actually photograph plates, as they call them, in high-quality, glossy magazine-style paper in the center of the book and actually put a number of plates in there showing some of these letters and some of these actual artifacts, as they call them. Now, when Zach was just talking about some of the caricatures and the drawings, some of these actually have a casket, for example, in them that says, we will put you in here. And there's a crude drawing of a casket. Some of them are written, what we at first thought was the older brown ink. Or the, or the ink that oxidizes and turns brown on some of these old, older documents, uh, the black goes away. But some of them, we had them looked at very closely, and it appears that they were written in human blood. Yeah. And that, with a with a couple drops, where you you know if you pricked your finger and held it over the paper, it would drops would spatter on drop on top of the paper, with a couple of those in there just for added you know psychotic effect. Uh, they were very good at what they did when it came to terror. Remember, there was no television. There's no radio. Very rarely did you ever get a Western Union telegraph because that was extremely expensive. Per letter, you were charged per letter and it was a lot of money. So you would get a letter in the mail. Everything you ordered, you know, from a catalog, anything came in the mail. There was nothing else out. There was no UPS or FedEx or anything. So when you got a letter, it was a big deal. Can you imagine being the guy with the business and you got your wife working with you and she's like, honey, you know, you got a letter. Because the outside of the envelope looks completely normal and innocuous. It looks like anything else. That's what they, it really was interesting, how it just looks like a normal letter on the outside. There's no blood on the outside or anything. But boy, when you cut that sucker open, look out. Like, you're going to end up here. He goes, what is that? A jacuzzi tub? <laughs> no, it's a coffin. <laughs> it's a coffin. It's a six-sided coffin. Well, I don't Absolutely. like the sound of that. Whether the primitive writing and the comical pictures will prove to be as effective as previous intimidations, the Black Hand is soon to discover. A successful Cincinnati fruit dealer named Fred Chancholo received such a letter, demanding several thousand dollars. Initially, he scoffs at the demand and continues about his affairs. He gives the letter stronger consideration when a bomb explodes on the front porch of his business. Ultimately, he decides that paying the Black Hand is just good business. Another Cincinnati produce dealer named Joseph Anarino comes to a similar conclusion 
when he's threatened with the kidnapping of his child. Like there was this black hand going on in New Orleans, and there was a famous case where this uh, six or nine-year-old kid gets kidnapped by the black hand. And uh, it just goes south. The kid won't shut up. He won't stop crying. And so they just end up killing him. And uh, they, they cut him up. Ah. They cut off his head, his arms. That became a nationally known case. Yeah, it was a rallying cry. Yeah, and they were asking for like $6,000 way back then. It was like 1907. Every newspaper in the United States had the story. The media, everybody, it tore their hearts out. Sam Lima is a man that is hard to refuse. A businessman named Augustino Inario is targeted and, like so many others, hopes he can ignore the threats and carry on with his pursuits. When his home explodes, he decides he'd rather leave the country than live under the tyranny and constant demands of his tormentors. He returns to Palermo, only to find that the Black Hand letters have followed him across the sea to his home in Sicily. If successful strangers had much to fear from Lima, it seems that familiar friends don't always fare much better. Pete Marcino owns a Columbus saloon that is a favorite card spot for the Black Hand. One day, when Lima's share of the profits isn't what he expects, the saloon explodes with such impact that it's literally reduced to rubble. By the way, the newspapers say the pictures of Marcino's saloon when it's blown up. It's right at 6th and Naughton Streets for our Columbus listeners. Uh, it says collapse in the newspaper. Yeah, and you see the picture. This thing is blown to smithereens. There isn't a piece of brick and mortar attached to itself anymore. It's literally piles of rubble, of individual bricks. Think of the explosion to break up a building into little tiny individual bricks, like a huge scattered pile. And it says collapse of Marcino Saloon. The Marcino family is sent away fleeing for their lives. To Sam Lima, business is business. Well, during Sam Lima's reign from 1908 to 1909, the society of the banana thrived. Each score seemed bigger than the last. The amount of money moving through the post office to Sicily was impressive, mostly going to Antonio Lima's wife, by the way. In one month alone, Sam's father, Antonio, sent 19 international money orders to his wife in Palermo, about $57,000 in today's currency. Business was so good that Sam Lima hired a man named Salvatore Luigini to help write extortion letters. When Salvatore was arrested for some trouble of his own, Lima hired Luicini's daughter, Maria, to help pick up the slack. And that's why a lot of the letters change in their appearance and their script throughout this story. Which I would imagine is pretty effective as far as not gathering a bunch of evidence that can be used against you in a court of law. Actually, it worked very well. This was the first federal case in U.S. history where handwriting comparison and analysis was used to convict. It seems that no matter how many times a man is beaten, or a house or business explodes, no matter how many horrible stories emerge regarding those who resist the black hand, someone is possessed with such a stubborn nature that no amount of warning will suffice. Often, these victims pay an even higher price. In January of 1909, a slow learner named Antonio Nuzzo continually ignores the threatening letters. Approached on the street, possibly by someone he knew and trusted, he accepts a banana Upon consuming the seemingly harmless gift, he begins to froth at the mouth and succumb to convulsions. He's pronounced dead that very day. Another man who persistently resists is literally shot dead in front of a horrified family. Afraid that their code of omerta may not be honored in lieu of the death, Lima and company infiltrate the funeral home where their deceased Mark is being prepared and douse the casket with kerosene before setting it wildly ablaze. The Black Hand is growing. Sam Lima's criminal underground is becoming the stuff of legend. 
His tactics and his power are infamous, not just to the criminal elements of society, but to the holier members of society as well. A Baptist minister named Reverend Rollins becomes aware of the Sicilian scallywags and takes them to task. He calls them out for their ways of gambling, liquor, and other sinful activities via his sermons. Soon these sermons are echoed in the local newspapers. This irks Sam Lima to no end. The people disparaged in these sermons are some of his closest friends, and he will not see them besmirched. Lima also does not want God or any of his minions to interrupt his prophets. One day while giving a sermon, Rollins notices an olive-skinned man amongst the pews, seething with disapproval. The following day, he receives a package. The package contains the drawing of a skull. Over the skull's eyes are affixed two human eyeballs. A letter enclosed reads, Stop your sermons against our employer or you will suffer. I hope this will blind you. It's even better than it sounds there. This package is opened by a church employee and inside is a charge that ignites a flash powder that burns the man's face and hands. Yeah, when he, when he opens. By the way, the Reverend Rollins was a classic. This is the Lincoln Baptist Church of Cincinnati, Ohio. There was so much booming in Cincinnati and all the Great Lakes, all the industries. We had three shifts. So he thought he had to save everybody. So the man gave sermons 24 hours a day and every one of them was a fire and brimstone. You dirty heathens, you know, you're gambling and your prostitution and the Society of the Banana members were getting a little bit nervous. He was getting a lot of attention and he was actually starting to actually talk to law enforcement. He said, I think I know where some of these guys live and who some of them are, that sort of thing. So they obviously had to do something fast. On April 18th, 1908, Columbus police are called to the scene of a murder. They arrived to find the body of Salvatore Sierra on the floor of the Demars Fruit Importers. Sierra is co-owner with his nephew, Charles DeMar. His body is discovered by his wife among the crates of apples and bananas that are splattered with his blood. The police are not surprised to find his wife is unable or unwilling to speak English, or that his 14-year-old daughter, Maria, is too upset to cooperate. They do discover that Sierra is a prominent Italian businessman whose connections would often visit him from Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Buffalo. He had long been regarded a suspicious character by local authorities, but no charges had ever been brought against him. The crime scene is processed by two Bellefontaine policemen. They discover no signs of forced entry, and a drawer full of cash seems to rule out robbery. There is no apparent motive for the killing until they search the body of Syrah. On his person were two letters written in block letter writing and signed Lamana Nera. At this point, the preliminary investigators knew two things for certain. Number one, they are unlikely to get any more information from the Italian community. Number two, the letters are not only crucial evidence, but they're also the end of the road for the two officers. By law, any crime involving the mail means jurisdiction is deferred to the U.S. Postal Inspector. It actually was called the Department of the Post Office at the time. Uh, it was a cabinet-level agency. The postmaster sat on the U.S. cabinet. And the reason that the jurisdiction immediately went to the post office was because at the time, the Department of the Post Office, plus the inspectors, uh, had the broadest legal jurisdiction in the world. Because of the United States, uh, of course, our economy, that sort of thing, we were growing and we had created a treaty with over 100 nations, in fact, more than that across the world. And as part of that treaty, 
anything that used the mail, coming and going, packages, money, anything like that, allowed the inspectors to have jurisdiction over any fraud or crimes that were committed through it. So they were able to travel all over the world and had authority literally anywhere. In fact, they started in 1775. The first postal surveyor slash inspector was a man by the name of William Goddard, appointed by the first U.S. postmaster, who was Benjamin Franklin. And so that law enforcement group was the first law enforcement agency in the country, at least the federal level. What happens, all currency, gold, that sort of thing is transferred still only through the U.S. Postal Service with a contract with the federal government. And so even today, the inspectors remain what they call the silent service. They don't like attention, but technically they still have the broadest reach of any federal law enforcement organization in the United States, if not the world. Now the treaty was updated just recently. I think it's 193 countries now. Wow. So they're still like, they'd be in charge of internet, anything like that, right? Anything that deals with using the electronic communications as well as the mail itself. That treaty was changed. Of course, it was probably 10 years late. The internet was quite readily being used around the world at that point. They finally changed it to include wire fraud and internet. And they also are basically, if you ever see the milk cartons, they're really the ones in charge of all the human trafficking as well, because most of that is done you know, with electronic means. Normally what they do is to remain there silent, as they like to call themselves, is to transfer the data or the criminal evidence, that sort of thing, over to a more public agency like the FBI or the U.S. Marshals or Interpol. And there are liaisons within the inspection service that are all around the world that are sitting in those foreign countries where they work with the law enforcement of those countries. And this happens all the time. The letters were turned over to Inspector J.F. Oldfield, who began his investigation by soliciting the services of a Sicilian translator. The translator reveals that in the first letter, Sira is referred to as a quote-unquote friend. This friend is offered his life in exchange for $2,000. The second letter was an admonishment for failure to pay and served as a final warning. Oldfield notices the block-style lettering, particularly the B's and D's, and the cartoonish drawings of skulls and daggers. It's easy to surmise that Sierra failed to oblige his extortionists, and he's now in the morgue, a bullet-ridden corpse. The inspector travels to the Italian neighborhood where Sierra is found, but finds the locals to be predictably uncooperative. All that he really learns is that the community is ravaged by beatings, murders, and explosions that go almost unilaterally unreported. He begins to suspect that at least some of these crimes are connected, but the possibility of exposing an international Sicilian crime ring seemed less and less likely by the month. Wasn't part of the issue that all the Italian newspapers were saying there is no such thing? You're right. The Italian newspapers, the editors were under pressure from these gangs to play down the threats. And the city newspapers, those editors wanted to sell papers too, of course, but they were pushed by law enforcement, by the mayors, other people, because they didn't want the people to panic in the city. So they tried to play it down that these new immigrants, it wasn't that bad, that these crimes were minor, we'll take care of it because they just didn't want to incite a panic. Plus, isn't it kind of just an Italian problem, which really isn't their problem? Well, there is the natural bias. At that time in the United States, you had mainly Germanic and English and Irish descent, uh, those different cultures. And the Italians were still around this time, uh, let's say 1900 to 1910. They were still seen as, I'll just be honest about it, I'm, I'm half Italian. They were seen as dirty and as the laborers, the lower classes. 
And that's why these business people we've talked about already, like Sira and Demar and Fessons and some of these others, you know, were quite successful. If they were donating to charities, they were very involved in the community, not just the Italian community. And so that was that beginning of Italians assimilating because they were becoming middle class, upper middle class, some even millionaires. And so that was helping. Definitely. But it was not the right. image yet. It's that dirty image I still fight. I take a shower once a week, need it or not, just because of that. <laughs> <laughs> and those darn dirty, big, bushy mustaches oh, that yeah. they used to have, right? Mustache. Oh, pink. yeah. We were familiar <laughs> with that term. On November 5th, 1908, Pepino Galbo pens a letter to Sam Lima, stating that he needs to be formally appointed the leader of the Black Hand, unless he prefers not to be. He prefers to be. Soon to be the official leader of the Society of the Banana, Sam Lima decides to set his sights on his biggest mark yet, the Banana Kings. Charles and Jonathan are millionaire brothers and co-owners of Amicon Brothers and Company, a colossal fruit business run in a generous and fair-minded way. The brothers are described as being family-focused and regular contributors to the Catholic Church. They're everything that Sam Lima despises. John and Charlie Amicon Americanized their names like many Italians did. There's the signs on their building outside in, on Naughton Street in Columbus, Ohio, said Amicon Brothers and Company, and they went by Charles and Jonathan. Jonathan was uh, Giovanni Amicone, was his original name. Now, he started out when he came to the United States working as a water boy on the railroad, uh, where you run up to the people with the bucket and the ladle and uh, on the top of the trestle and, and give water to the guys and get paid almost nothing. Then he said, wait a minute, I could make more money. And so he bought himself a bag of peanuts and he doubled his money by selling that bag of peanuts to the laborers. And he just continued to do that sort of thing and just gradually started to build a business. And eventually, uh, by the time of this story, they were the largest fruit import exporter in the United States. It was amazing how big they were. And they were in Columbus, Ohio, which was sort of an inland port because of all the highways and the railroads that were going through. And so they could import to that area of the country and send out their fruit all over the Great Lakes region of the United States. Now, secondly, by the way, the Amicons were great friends with the Fessons, yep. remember them? And John Amicon was really not happy about the Black Hand and these thugs that he saw within the Italian community uh, around the United States, not only in Columbus, but other parts of the country with his communications, uh, trying to hold back all these hardworking people like himself who had started with nothing and worked their way up to become very wealthy. And these thugs were trying to basically get something for nothing from these families like the Amicons. And so he was furious when he found out that Mrs. Fesson had been threatened and uh, that they were actually now paying. And John Amicon really publicly in church and he'd been quoted in the Columbus Dispatch newspaper. He chided these thugs, as he called them, in black handers as lazy cowards who were absolutely too pathetic to even just earn a standard living. And one of his famous quotes that was in the paper was, let me be clear, if anyone tries to get money from me, he'll have to kill me first. You know, he really backs himself into a corner, though, because when you're public like that and they turn the gun sights at you, now you only have one recourse. He knew this was coming, by the way. He knew that this was going to come to a head and he was ready for it. He was that kind of right. guy. Right. And, you know, like so many times him and his buddy Fasson would sit back and have a few drinks and they'd be cordial. And when about three jinks in, he'd be like, you know, you're a pussy, right? <laughs> I promise you that that conversation went in some form, but I think it was probably in Italian. <laughs> Understandably, Sam Lima feels sentiments like this are bad for business. Further, he cannot bear the thought that there might be someone out there unafraid of him. 
he can't resist sending a letter to Giovanni Amicone on Amicone's Italian name. This impulsive act of aggression will set into motion events that will ultimately incriminate Sam Lima and expose his underground criminal syndicate to the world. In January of 1909, John Amicon receives a letter written in his native Italian. The letter is direct and to the point. Dear sir, you must give us $10,000 and nothing bad will happen to you. We are confident that you will not go to the police. The letter instructs Amicon to give the payment to, quote unquote, an honorable man and deliver it to a location near a Pittsburgh bridge. So knowing how the Italian community has been under this scourge for years, a family that gets one of these letters is terror-stricken. These guys are typical Italian Catholics. They've got wives, tons of children to worry after. It's understandable that they consider paying, or minimally they're going to try to negotiate a less ridiculous amount. So Charles, his brother, has this reaction. But John's made of more stubborn stock, as we said, and living in fear is what drove him to America in the first place. Plus, he's gone around town with his big talk of defying these guys when it was his friends and neighbors that were being victimized. Amicon is determined that the Black Hand will not get the better of him. He's heard the rumors of their horrible deeds and is acutely aware that his friends, the Fassones, are regularly paying them in exchange for their lives. Stress is wearing on him, however, as he fears for the lives of his family. He begins to imagine the terror tactics of kidnapping, beatings, and explosions that might come of his ignoring the threats. Then another letter arrives. We have put you down in the register of the dead, nasty brute. That for money you are content to be killed. No one escapes from under our hands. We have stabbed many in Italy. Consider that I, who wrote this, has a price of 14,000 lira on my head. For eight years was followed by the police, and know not how many I have killed with my trusty carbine, which has never failed me. Either your money or your blood. The Black Hand. Weeks went by, and several more letters were delivered. John convinced his brother Charles to resist paying the extortion demands. The Black Hand became more brazen. One morning, Charles's wife finds a rolled up Pittsburgh newspaper on the front porch of her home. Inside is a stick of dynamite with a message warning that they will receive the 10,000 or they will blow up the house with all the children inside it. Desperate, Charles Amicon, via a man and his employee named Herman Holland, goes to the Italian consulate and presents the threatening letters. It's to no avail. The representative of the consulate merely shrugs it off, explaining that it's an American problem. There's nothing he can do about it. We had some difficulty identifying Herman Holland. Uh, we thought he may have actually been more than just a supervisor in Amicon Brothers Company. That he may have also had connections with the police force, friends of his or family members, or possibly even a private detective. So Mr. Holland was more than just an employee. He had some contacts. And if you notice, he's not an Italian. Yeah. So obviously he knows the locals, knows the Columbus police force, you know, that kind of stuff. If we go back to the black hand note, I can see a few things that would give Amicon hope. A, it says we have stabbed many in Italy. That's kind of like having a girlfriend in Canada. I haven't stabbed anybody you know, but other than Italy, yeah, I stabbed all kinds of people. She goes to a different school. <laughs> we were bad hombres over in Italy. <laughs> but we needed somebody to stand up to them. Actually, yeah, and, and Amicon was the person to do it. You know, he's got some some prestige. I mean, granted, he's not in New York or L.A. or Washington, D.C. or something. He's in Columbus, Ohio, but look at the success he's had. People saw Amicon written on these crates all over the United States, coming into their stores and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, he was well-known. Plus, he's tough. He is the black hand on the good guy side. 
Oh, absolutely. He is a tough, tough guy. Yeah, and that's why they're writing him letters and stuff. If they confront him directly, he would kill him. I think he would have. Absolutely. Uh, I met some of his relatives in Columbus, Ohio, some of his descendants, and they're all these wonderful people, but they're very, very strong. You can tell in their personalities. It's almost the genetics is still there. And, you know, they're very honorable, wonderful people, stiff backbone, strong people, definitely. A few days later, John Amicon finds a thin dagger wrapped in a note. The dagger is apparently a duplicate as the message inside reads, The other will soon be in your back, Mr. Amicon. Although Mr. Amicon does not share his fellow immigrants' sense of powerlessness regarding the black hand, he has adopted their distrust of the local law enforcement. He opts instead to hire the services of a private detective named Charles McLeese to protect himself and his family. McLeese gets to work surveilling the community for suspicious characters and inquiring about town as to who may be responsible for the extortion attempts. On the third night of his employment, private detective is surveilling from the shadows of the Amicon property when he hears the rear gate opening. From his vantage point of a grape arbor, he can see a man walking straight to the back of the house. A nearby streetlight affords enough light for McLeese to recognize the trespasser as a man he noticed earlier at a saloon across from the Amicon warehouse. Despite verbal warnings from the detective, the interloper keeps his course, only retreating when McLeese emphasizes his point with two rounds from a revolver. The man retreats to the company of two other men. It's dark, but McLeese is able to see them clearly enough to ascertain their identities. They are Sam and Sebastian Lima, and a man named Severio Ventola, a known ex-con and henchman in the Lima crew. The intimidation tactics seem quelled for about a week, until John's wife Teresa finds a dynamite roll, much like the one previously sent to Charlie Amicon. The message within reads, Dear John Amicon, by the blood of God, we are in back of you. We have killed kings and emperors. Consider a fly like you. If you wish to avert your death, You will search for an honorable man to go to Pittsburgh, and while he is searching for us, he will be found. We advise that if you go to the police, you can count yourself dead. You have to understand, though, you know, when they send these letters, and it just says, give the money to an honorable man, and the man's going to get on a train back then and take off from Columbus to go to Pittsburgh. He's going to have to also switch trains as well. They didn't didn't go directly. Someone's following him. Right, and watching you at all times, no matter where you are. And so it created an image of inevitability. It's impossible for you to move without us knowing where you move. But John Amicon on his end is like, well, thank you for that very specific detailed description of what won't be happening. (laughs) Yeah, right. I'm going to give $10,000 and I'm going to give it to an honorable man. And he's going to walk away with $10,000 of my money. You just wasted a paragraph. Because that ain't going to (laughs) happen. The look of sheer terror on his wife's face is the final assault that John Amicon can withstand. Seething with anger, he squeezes the offensive letter in his fist and heads three blocks to a massive four-story federal post office and custom house building. John Amicon marches into the Columbus post office, letter in hand, declaring to the on-duty postmaster Harry Crum, I want to speak to Uncle Samma! He is ultimately led to the office of Inspector Oldfield. Oldfield studies the letter. He can't understand a word of the Italian script, but he immediately recognizes the block-style lettering and the ridiculous cartoon drawing of a skull, dagger, and bleeding heart. For a man who never lets a crime go unsolved, the letter is a sight for sore eyes, and the zealous man before him is a gift from heaven. 
John Amicon informs the inspector that he and his brother are being extorted for 20000 between them. He also advises the names of other victims in the community that are suffering under similar circumstances. The Italian businessman proves to be the gift that keeps on giving. He assures Frank Oldfield that he has further evidence to turn over, that he suspects a man named Sam Lima, and that he is prepared to testify in a court of law. All right, sorry guys, it's getting late. We're going to have to call that part one. But the next episode uh, will be coming out quickly. It's not going to take a long time. Yeah, thank you very much, all of it. I can't wait to get come back on again. Yes. So good night, everybody, and God bless. Good night. Good night. Good night.